Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew in the New Testament. We're going to be looking at the Beatitudes. They are part of the daily Bible reading for this week. I think they show up on like Tuesday, if I am correct. But Matthew in the New Testament, there are four books, four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When I came here, I hate to say this, when I came here 43 years ago, um, I asked a group of people if they could name me the four Gospels. And uh, guess what? I couldn't, with all of their heads together, they couldn't come up with the four Gospels. Now, to be fair to you, they were kids. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which leads me into my first illustration for today. All right. One morning, a little boy proudly surprised his grandmother with a cup of coffee that he had made all by himself. He anxiously sat there and waited to see what her reaction to the cup of coffee would be. He was proud of it. He thought it was a good cup of coffee. And so he watched her, and she was drinking the coffee, and never in her life had she had such a bad cup of coffee. And she, for she forced down the last sip of the coffee and noticed that there were three little green army guys in the bottom of the cup. She asked, honey, why would three little green army guys be in the bottom of my cup? Her grandson replied, you know, Grammy, it's just like on television. The best part of waking up is soldiers in your cup. Now, you know that I don't use humor just to use humor. There's a lesson in it. And when I read this illustration, it reminded me and still reminds me to this day, 43 years later, how sometimes I can be so dumb about God's word. I may think I got it right, but I remember the days when I was really young and I just couldn't understand it any better than he could understand a cup of coffee. And as an immature child, and in growing up, I realized that this is where all of us are from time to time. And so I just want to remind you that when we look at God's Word this morning, in fact, part of the, the, part of the reason for the daily Bible reading is to help us over this problem of just scratching our heads and saying, I, I don't understand a word of it. I don't think I got it. I think it just went over my head. And so in Matthew chapter 5, we're looking at the Beatitudes this morning, and let me suggest to you that one of the best things you can do when you're looking at the Beatitudes or any passage of Scripture is to read it over and over and over again. And the multitudes, and, and seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And then you have a bonus verse. 
How many of you remember this bonus verse that you have? You'll look at that and say, oh, really? This is a bonus verse? Yes, look at verse 11 and 12. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And there's the passage of Scripture. And it's important for you and I to read it over and over and over and over again. And as you read that passage of Scripture, you're going to make some general observations. How many times, for instance, did you see the word blessed or blessed? Did you see all those words? And it doesn't matter which version you're using for the most part. If you're using any of the standard good versions, uh, they, all, they all take that Greek word and say blessed. Blessed is the man who falls into these categories. Eight times plus it is mentioned. But there's another general observation that you're going to make when you read these Beatitudes, and you're only going to get this observation if you read it over and over and over again. I noticed, for instance, that in verse 3, he qualifies the first characteristic. He says, blessed are the poor, and then he says, not just any poor person, not just the person who doesn't have two nickels to rub together, not just the person who doesn't have a good job and is living on the wrong side of town. He said, blessed is the poor in spirit. He's not talking about physical poverty. He's talking about spiritual poverty. And then I noticed that he does the same thing with the fourth, fourth beatitude. Blessed are those, verse 6, notice this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. He's not talking about the person who's looking for a dollar in his pocket so he can get down to McDonald's and get himself a hamburger. He's not talking about the person who's waiting for a Thanksgiving dinner and he's just so hungry because he has eaten all day, he doesn't know what to do. He's not talking about the person who's worked all day and, and brought a lunch and just can't wait to sit down and eat that lunch. He's not talking about physical hunger and thirst. He's talking about spiritual hunger and thirst. And then I want you to notice that he does the same thing in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. He's not talking about the person who hasn't had a bath all week and he's getting ready to take his Saturday bath. He's not talking about the person who has... Had uh, been out working and in the dirt all day, and he's just covered with dirt and can't wait to get home to get a shower. He's not talking about physical, physical impurity. He's talking about spiritual purity. Blessed are the pure in heart. And then, if you have been reading the Beatitudes over and over again, you're going to notice a fourth time, a fourth time where he qualifies the characteristics or the recipients of God's blessing. In verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He's not just talking about a person who's persecuted. He's not talking about a person who has persecuted you for anything other than 
righteousness sake. And so that general characteristic leads me to conclude that the Beatitudes are all about God's spiritual blessings to us and what they mean for us in the future in physical ways perhaps as well. But there's a third illustration, there's a third observation that I made when I was looking at the Beatitudes and reading them over and over and over and over again. And that third illustration that I came up with is this, that these Beatitudes are not what you call a cause and effect relationship based on natural law. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me try to illustrate this for a second. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is still doing, he's still teaching the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, he says, Judge not that you be not judged, because this is, you can make a case for this is the way the world works. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And we live in a world where it's tit for tat. We live in a world where it's you do to me, I'll do back to you. You judge me, I'll judge you. And so we kind of match what other people do. And I'm only saying this to you not to suggest that there's none of that here, but natural law, the way the world works, what goes around comes around, isn't really the point that is being made here. Because we take it out of that, you know, that merry-go-round of stuff that goes round and round and where it stops, nobody knows. You know, we take it out of that and we put it all in God's hands. Because if you will look at all of the blessings that God describes in the Beatitudes, you will discover that every single one of them are blessings that God bestows, that God gives. Man has no way of giving to us the kingdom of heaven. There's no way man can do that. In the second beatitude, man has no way to comfort us the way God can comfort us. Number three, Man has no way to give us the earth to inherit. We cannot inherit the earth because of man's efforts to help us inherit the earth because God owns the earth. Only he gets to control it and tell us what he's going to do with it and decide who's going to live on it and who's going to enjoy it. <clears throat> and you could go down through all of those beatitudes and you will discover that God is the one who gives every single blessing. None of them are dependent upon what happens around us. None of them are dependent on the people that we know <clears throat> and work with and live with and serve with. Now, I'm going to go through a couple of these Beatitudes and I'm going to only go as far as time will allow and then I'm going to save the last couple of minutes for a conclusion. But I want to give you an idea of my strategy, my structure for this. I want to look at the characteristic, the beatitude. I want to find an illustration in Scripture. And number three, then I want to make you aware of the fact 
that this blessing is something you and I need to be thinking about and getting excited about. And I share all that with you because I don't know about you, but you can talk to people for years and years and years about what they think about the Beatitudes. And number one, thank you very much, that might help. A lot of people will tell you that the Beatitudes are God's plan of salvation. Have you ever heard that? God's plan of salvation. In other words, you and I need to do all of these things, and if we do all of these things and are obedient, we certainly will be saved. Now, hold that thought, because I want to qualify it in a big way. Some people look at this and say, no, these are just God's general requirements for society. And if society would listen to everything that Jesus says in the Beatitudes, we would be able to live in a peaceful world. And then you have some people who look at the Beatitudes and they say, well, the Beatitudes aren't really for this age in which we live. They're not for this age at all. They're for the next age, or they're for the millennial reign of Christ. But I want you to look at these Beatitudes, and let me give you my observation. My observation is pretty clear. The Beatitudes are a picture of the believer. And that's good news. And the really neat thing about it is I can stand here this morning and I can take this picture and I can give it out to you and you can look at it and you can say, wow, I get to decide whether I measure up to the things that God wants me to be as a believer, as a Christian, as one who loves the Lord. Because if you love the Lord, you are going to be all of these things in one way or another. So this is a great picture. Do It's a good test for you. It's a good test for me. So let's take a look at a couple of observations from these Beatitudes. Number one, God says the poor in spirit are going to be blessed. Now, we live in a day and age when the, the society around us is not poor in spirit. We are arrogant. We are proud. We are boastful. That is a picture of human nature. And the fact of the matter is that we are taught that we all have a self-esteem to protect. We have a self-esteem to nurture. We want to be our best, look our best, and the more someone tells us that we are great, the better we feel. And God says that the believers outlook is different. The believer's outlook is not one of pride and arrogance or boastfulness, but the believer's outlook is one of being poor in spirit, which means that we are humble. Being poor in spirit doesn't mean that you're dysfunctional. Being poor in spirit doesn't mean that uh, you're a basket case emotionally. That's not what it means at all. Being poor in spirit means that we are humble. So if you pass the test as far as humility is concerned, 
An illustration that I could give to you, one of my favorites, is in Isaiah, the Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 66. In Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and following, God talks about, Isaiah is, is giving to us instructions from God. God talks about heaven being my throne. This is a lofty subject. I love these passages of Scripture where God tells us how big and how powerful and how mighty he is and how he controls everything and how he sees everything and he knows everything and is everywhere. I love these passages of Scripture because he's telling us the truth and he's doing it for a very good reason. But this is a very lofty topic here. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So where is the house that you will build me? Remember Solomon talked about this. When he's building the temple, he says, we're building this great big temple for you, Lord, but we can't fit you into this thing. You're too big to fit in the temple. You're everywhere. You'll come and worship with us here, but we're, we're, we're not so naive as to believe that we're going to pack you into this little building. And so God reiterates this in Isaiah 66. He says, he says, where is the house that you will build me? Or where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. So we come away from these two verses of Scripture and we say to ourselves, wow, this is incredible. I got this beautiful picture. I got this beautiful picture of God so big that he's sitting on his throne in heaven and his feet are resting on the earth as if the earth were a footstool. That's incredible. I love it. I love it. And then it's almost like he bursts our bubble with what he says next. He says, but on this one thing will I look. You talk about things that you want to think about and things that you want to dwell on. He says, but this is the one thing that you should spend some time thinking about. But on this one thing will I look. And what does it say? Everybody together. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. That's the poor in spirit. And the Bible says, and we can repeat this, the Bible says that the poor in spirit possess what? The kingdom of God. Number two. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I've been in the ministry a long time to know that we provide very little comfort to those who are experiencing tragedy. I know that as a pastor, and you know that as parishioners, you know that when people are experiencing tragedy, sometimes you stand there and there's nothing you can say to help them through their tragedy. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't comfort. It doesn't mean that we can't get people thinking in the right direction. It doesn't mean that at all. But I'm reminding you that the Beatitudes are what God does for us and not what we do for ourselves. And so a good illustration of this would be John chapter 11. You don't have to turn to John chapter 11. It is the... It is the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. 
But if you want to turn to it, let me remind you that Lazarus had died. He had been put into the tomb, and Mary and Martha, his sisters, are so distraught they are beside themselves. In fact, both of them accused Jesus of not doing anything about it. If he had come there earlier and it had been there when Lazarus was going through all of this, then uh, he would never have died in the first place. But the thing about the John passage of Scripture that amazes me is this. When Jesus comes, Martha is the one who first meets Jesus, and then Mary is told that Jesus is there, and Mary goes out to meet, um, go with Martha to meet Jesus as well. But the thing that I want you to see here in John chapter 11 is that when the sister's brother died, the Jews, the Jews came to gather around Mary and Martha and comfort them concerning their brother. That's verse 19. God makes a big deal of putting it into the Scriptures. Death is one of the worst things that can possibly happen, and it's very hard to comfort people when you have a death in the family. And so the Bible says the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. And as if that had not been enough, the Bible tells us that when Mary, Martha comes to the place uh, where, where, where she's talking to Jesus about it, and Mary hears the news, the Bible says once again that the Jews who were there to comfort Mary and Martha, noticed that Mary had received word and left them to go be with Martha. Little comfort that was. The best that could be done. But when the Bible says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, it's talking about comfort that God gives to us, that God grants to us. And John chapter 11 is just a preview of that. God is the God of all comfort. And there are many illustrations that we could refer to, but I want you to think about this. The time is going to, the time comes, whether it's now or in the future, when God is able to wipe the tears from your eyes. The time comes when God is able to say to you, you can stop crying now. You don't need to cry any longer, you see. And that's to those who mourn. But I want to give you a caution here. What I want you because I love comparisons in the Bible. I like to compare the good things with the bad and I want you to think about Luke chapter 16, verse 19 and following for just a moment. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 and following for just a moment. Because here's a situation where two people die. The first one who dies, the Bible tells us that there was a certain rich man in verse 19. He was wealthy. He fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, who laid at the gate of the city, who had nothing, he was destitute. 
and all he wanted was the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried to Abraham. That's symbolism for, for um, carried to paradise, to heaven. And the rich man also died and was buried. And the rich man, for some reason, can't find comfort anywhere. You know the story very well. So you know that he was in torment in Hades, and he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom, and he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. All I need is a tip of a drop of water on the tip of my finger to cool my tongue. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime, verse 25, you received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but everybody together, if you have your Bible, now he is comforted and you are tormented. And I just can't help but jump in at this point. I suppose I should do this at the end of the sermon, but I'm telling you something here. If you don't know Christ, then you're not a part of God's family. And this is not a picture of you in Matthew chapter 5 then the other picture is what you're going to experience. There's not going to be any comfort for your mourning. And when the righteous inherit the earth, you will inherit hell. That's what the scriptures teach. And so I merely mention this to you because it's important for you and I to determine where we are in relationship to Christ who came and gave his life for us and has offered to us salvation through faith in him by his work on the cross and not our efforts. This is a picture of believers who are truly righteous. Righteous not because of some outward circumstances, but righteous because that change has occurred in the heart by our faith in Christ. But it leads me to the third beatitude. And the third beatitude is this. Blessed are the what? The meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, the meek get pushed around a lot. The meek get made fun of a lot. And a meek person, this believer, this picture of the believer who is meek is a picture of someone who, while they're pushed around, while they're made fun of, are very patient and are able to maintain a mild temperament in all of this. Why? Because we have no need to fight our way to the top. We have no need to throw our weight around. We have no need to worry in, the, in this big scheme of things and all that's happening in the world today. You and I have no need to really worry about it, whether it is, oh dear, I, I, I don't want to, uh, you know what I'm talking about. We have no need to worry about it because ultimately you and I will what? Inherit the earth. Say it together. You and I will inherit the earth. It's going to be there for us. God is going to preserve it. 
God is going to protect it. He's going to re, not reinvent it, but he's going to rehabilitate it. He's going to, he's going to recreate it. But God's, it's God's earth and not man's earth. And so we need to keep that in mind. Well, we have time probably for one more. The next beatitude, number four, is hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed is the man, or blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. For what? They shall be filled. I have lived a long time on this earth, and I know that there are people who are not satisfied in this world in which they live. They're never satisfied. Nothing ultimately satisfies them. And we're talking about it from a spiritual perspective. It shows up in their emotions. There's a void in their lives. There's a problem that just they just uh, it just never get over. There's a there's a there's a whole scheme of things that just never satisfy. And the Bible says that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. Do you remember when the lady came to where Jesus went to the well in Samaria in John chapter 4? Do you remember when Jesus came to that well, went to that well, and sat down? He asked the lady for a drink of water. Do you remember that in John chapter 4? I find it so interesting that Jesus says to the woman of Samaria, give me a drink of water. Disciples had gone into town to buy some food, and and, uh, the woman of Samaria said, well, you you know, you shouldn't even be talking to me because I'm a Samaritan. And then Jesus said to you, listen, I'm asking you for a drink of water. Let me paraphrase. But listen, if you knew who I was and you knew the gift that I could give to you, you'd be asking me for water. You remember that? And he adds the the descriptive word to that, living water. You'd be asking me for living. She's still scratching her head. She doesn't understand what he means. And he's thinking, living water, that must be water that's flowing like an artesian well or something like that. And she says, boy, that well's pretty deep. And that, 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 that well's been there a long, long time. How, how can you give me some living water? She still doesn't understand it. And then Jesus in verse 13 says to her, whoever drinks of this water, the water in this well is going to thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But that water shall be a well, a spring of water, springing up into everlasting life. Isn't it nice to wake up in the morning and know that that your, your heart is satisfied in your hunger and your thirst after righteousness? Your heart is satisfied knowing that eternal life is yours. I don't have to worry about an eternal void in my heart and in my life. Psalm 63 is a great illustration of that. I just want to bring it to your attention, and I think we'll we'll have to stop there. But in Psalm 63, I want you to, I want you to see this passage of Scripture. So if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 63 for just a moment here. Because in Psalm 63, verses 1 and following, we have a great, great illustration here of joy that we have in our fellowship with God and how satisfying that is. Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. Why? Because my soul thirsts for you. My flesh 
longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus will I bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. And then here's the punchline. This is the punchline. I love these little punchlines. Verse 5, my soul shall be satisfied as if I had just eaten Thanksgiving dinner and my physical appetite has been satisfied. Isn't that what he says? My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. The picture of a believer in Christ is a picture of one who not only is poor in spirit, not only one who mourns, but is comforted, but is, but is meek, and also hungers and thirsts after righteousness and experiences the satisfaction of being filled. I don't know about you. I don't know if you wake up in the morning and you just have this gnawing hunger and this gnawing dissatisfaction with life and everything there is about it, but that should not be the way it is for the believer. Amen? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what, what it is. It doesn't matter whether it was back in the in the time of the New Testament or here in the 20th century with all the problems we face in a, in a world that is so big, we just don't have enough leadership to figure out how to solve all the problems, it seems. But anyway, this is your picture. So here's my concluding thought for you. We ought to go home today and be pretty, pretty excited. Read the rest of them. Merciful, pure, peacemaker, persecuted. Read them. Study them. Look at the blessings. We'll obtain mercy. We'll see God. We'll be called the sons of God. Would you rather be called a son of God or, or a child of the devil? You're one or the other? <laughs> and then he ends it back up in, in, verse, in the last beatitude by saying, that the kingdom of heaven is certainly been granted to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then in that bonus passage, he says, great is your reward. The Bible says God is a rewarder of those who seek him. So my final thought is this. Make a comparison. Go to one of the pictures of the other pictures of the believer in the New Testament or the Old Testament and go to the picture of the unbeliever. Why don't you go to Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. Go to Romans chapter 3, for instance, where we have this picture of the unbeliever and his life. The life filled with sin and sorrow and guilt and shame. Then come back to this one. A life free from guilt and shame and sorrow and dissatisfaction. Come back to it. Come back to it. These are God's personal words for you and I. I don't know how much per, more personal I can make it for you. I can only, I can, let me try to illustrate this in, a, in an odd way. I, I, I go out and I walk a lot and I like to walk through East Park in Connellsville. And East Park has a stream that runs through Connellsville. And you know that 
when you walk in, in when you when you walk in East Park and you see this stream that goes through the park, you'll notice that there are strata in the hillsides. It's very obvious. There's strata there where the waterfalls are. You know what strata is, right? Layers and layers and layers of sediment. Sediment that was scientifically laid down by water. So I, I hope I'm a little smarter than the average bear. You see, because when I walked to East Park, and I did it the other day, I just did it, I think it was yesterday morning, and I walked through the park, and I was standing there by the waterfalls, and I was looking at that strata, and I say, well, you know what? Uh, this is pretty up close and personal for me, because right here is evidence of the flood of Noah's day. It's right here. It's right in my face. It's right in front of me. It's right in front of me. Now you got to make it personal. These are Jesus' personal words to the multitude, specifically his disciples who came to him. And he gives the characteristics, a wonderful picture of the believer. And you can say, I know him. I personally know the person who gave those words. It's true of me because of what he did for me on the cross. Amen. Gracious Lord, we thank you for these words. What an encouragement they are to us. And when we take the test and we see ourselves in the middle of this picture, we thank you. Because it's your work of grace. It's all you're doing. And the blessings are all yours that you have promised to us here and in the future. And with thanksgiving, we come and we pray, Lord, for those who need to respond to the gospel. Pray, Lord, that you would open their hearts. In Jesus, your name we pray. Amen.